The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's August 3rd, and the time is 4.05, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in on my birthday. I'm Marissa Jordan. Today's show is a little bit of a throwback. Today I'll be airing some of my favorite pre-aired pieces. I hope you all will enjoy. Later in the show, we'll have this day in history to see what remarkable events have taken place on this day in the past, and a look at the weather for this week. As always, Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. In this throwback edition, he reviews the film Seven Psychopaths. Nick Weaver brings you his modest mouth music review. You'll be hearing his review for the album The Great Detachment by Winter's Sleep. Nikita Chintalapudi brings you her poetry corner. In this throwback session, she interviews the poet Shannon Ward. But first, I will bring you a look at the local news this week. I will be investigating the speculation on the newest season of American Horror Story, the death of a Wake County principal, and the NCAA accusations against Jan Foxel. In local news this week, the famous NC Lost Colony could potentially be the next story idea for the popular FX TV show, American Horror Story. Laurel Ann Darden, a marketing coordinator for the show, said that she hadn't specifically heard that the Lost Colony would be the theme for the next season, but that she would not be surprised. I know that the producer, Ryan Murphy, is very interested in the Lost Colony, she said. The sixth season of American Horror Story is set to release this fall. On Tuesday, August 2nd, James Hedrick, the principal of Athens Drive High School, died. Hedrick had served the Wake County school system since 2005 and had previously been the principal of Greenhope High School. The details of his death have not yet been released. Jane Boxall, the former UNC Chapel Hill professor of philosophy and academic advisor to the women's basketball team, is under scrutiny for providing too much academic help and special arrangements to athletes. However, Boxall is denying the allegations. Boxall's attorney said, It did not happen. Not one of the allegations against Jan Boxel is true. Boxel claims her assistance was not given to student-athletes as an advantage, but to help them succeed in college-level academics. The NCAA picked specific examples of mentoring to students that they found inappropriate, but Boxel claims that all of the cited cases were students of extreme situations that really needed counseling. Jan Boxel's interactions with students were conscientious efforts on her part to teach students by meeting and talking with them for hours and hours, monitoring their progress, and explaining and critiquing their work, correcting their mistakes, and helping them learn how to do college-level academic work, Rodden, Boxel's attorney, wrote. One case cited by the NCAA as inappropriate was that Boxel provided a bibliography for one student's paper on Title IX. 
but the annotated bibliography was provided by Boxel outside of her office for anyone's use. The student was told to use the list of resources to create her own bibliography. Another case was that Boxel provided a student with an introduction for a paper. The introduction provided by Boxel, however, was on the history of hip-hop and not children's literature and black history, the topic of the student's paper. The introduction provided by Boxel was only to be used as an example. The NCAA has attempted to find Boxel providing inappropriate help, but Boxel has responded with, I never thought anything I ever did was impermissible. I'm Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Everyone has a story to tell, but how they tell it differs. Whether you're a poet, spoken word artist, singer, an actor, a musician, everyone has that story to tell. And here is the place to tell it. Welcome to Poetry Corner. Hey guys, welcome to Poetry Corner. I'm Nikita Chintalapudi, and I'm here today with Shannon Ward. Shannon, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Nikita. So Shannon actually received her MFA in 2009 from NC State, and she was under the direction of Dorian Locks, who continues to teach here today. She is the author of the poetry chapbook, Blood Creek, and her poem Love Spell was selected by Kevin Young for the 2016 White Oak Kitchen Prize in Southern Poetry. So congratulations. Thanks. And she was also the winner of the 2013 Nazim Hikmet Poetry Prize. Her work has appeared in numerous outstanding journals, including Raleigh Review, Great River Review, Superstition Review, and Tar River Poetry. So again, thank you for being with us. I hear you have some great stuff for us today. I'm super excited. Oh, thanks for having me. So first we'll get started with your first poem, which I believe is entitled The Man with Red Eyes. Yeah, um, so this poem comes from my chat book, which weaves a familial incest narrative with poems about the renovated slaughterhouse that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And these two themes overlap throughout the book. Um, so this this first poem is a mock villanelle. It doesn't adhere to the rhyme structure, but it does follow the pattern of repetition. And it's a story that my sister used to tell me about the man with red eyes. Each night the butcher rises, soaking from Blood Creek, and sloshes back through the woods to our house. His red eyes watch through the windows while we sleep. Smoke rises from my sister's mouth as she speaks. He froze to death, drunk, chopping wood. Yet each night the butcher rises, soaking from Blood Creek. This is the story she tells instead of the secret she keeps, the black spot lurking at the back of her throat. His red eyes watch through the windows while we sleep. Soon she disappears in a fog of blue smoke, weeks that cloud into years, while still each night the butcher rises, soaking from Blood Creek. So when we wake in the night, we don't dare peep outside, and we don't dare keep our bedroom doors unlocked. His red eyes watch through the windows while we sleep. I can see him even now, a red streak, sneaking through all the doors of my dreams. Each night the butcher rises, soaking from Blood Creek. His red eyes watch through the window while we sleep. The next poem's called Dressing the Hog, and it also comes from the chapbook. Since I grew up in a renovated slaughterhouse and I started writing slaughterhouse poetry, (laughs) I had to deal with the fact that this butcher who'd built the house um, in the early 1900s was actually a a real person, but I'd kind of used him as a a stand-in for my father. 
having done that, I, I felt a little guilty and I wanted to write a poem and give the butcher a, a chance to speak, to, to defend himself. And I, I had intended to allow him to, to come off admirably. Um, but then I wrote the poem and he, he <laughs> sounds kind of like a psychopath. So well, we can't be responsible for the way poems end up, can we? No, I guess we can't. They just go where they want to. Dressing the hog. Truth be told, I like the blood, the sour sweet smell, thick and sticky slick, how it steams on winter mornings. I like the body drained of it, hooked just behind the hooves, hanging and waiting with exquisite symmetry. The bandsaw is quicker, but I don't trust the bone dust, would rather cleave the body into the old way. How I learned from my father, who learned from his father, who learned in Berlin before boarding a boat to America in 1835. So you see, I do what I do well. I slice flesh like silk to spill the guts. And I spread the body out, pink and cool and clean, an offering to the knife's immaculate subtraction. Then across my table, I splay the cuts of meat, each attesting to its former utility. And when the children across the creek smell the rendering lard and come running for the cracklins, I throw the eyeballs at them. The next poem I'm going to read is called Love Spell, and I wrote it after I finished the chapbook in an attempt to add some levity where the book really needed some. <laughs> uh, so I attended a really great panel that had off of Michael Weaver and Katrina Vandenberg called Levity and Gravity, and I came away with a lot of thoughts about how I could lighten the tone in certain parts of the collection. And so I was at the Norton Island Colony and uh, went muscling with a couple of the other <laughs> residents we uh you know got into the, the waters fun. in Maine yeah <laughs> we we stepped into the really ice cold waters in Maine and uh, collected mussels and so this is the poem that resulted from that love spell low tide between two rocky shores step barefoot in the sound absorb the shock of cold into your bones as you sink into the muck sucking under step through mud clouds pluming over sharp rocks, you must feel your way lightly with the soles of your feet. Wade waist deep to where the sweetest mussels nestle, hiding from the sun like sleepy lovers, growing plump beneath thick tidal blankets. Reach into the muck and tuck your fingers beneath their clumpy beds. Tug gently to tear the bisel thread nets pinned to the seafloor and fill your hands with heavy strands of silver-blacked blue shells, crusted with cockles and tasseled in seaweed. Rip the rocks away and plunk them back into the water. Pilfer the fodder of the blue world until your bag is full. Then drape it over the dock and let the current wash the muck away, all day until supper time when you'll return to sort, the silted from the sealed squeezing each shell, tossing those that ooze gritty slime into your palms and pulling stubborn whiskers from the ones you keep, chipping away what barnacles you can. Rinse them again in the ocean and the sink, mince many cloves of garlic to saute and salted butter, add cheap white wine and a little water. When the mixture boils, drop the mussels in and cover. Let the steam seep the hinged valves open the nacreous lamina cupping its sweet meat, which you must chew slowly, swallow the pearls.
the next poem is called Vanishing Spell, and it appeared in the latest issue of the Raleigh Review. And uh, it's another one of the spell series that I wrote to add some levity to the full-length collection that I'm working on, although this isn't the most lighthearted poem. <laughs> uh, vanishing Spell. Cut the heart from the next dead bird the cat drops at the back door. Chop the slick giblet into a stew, then catch a bus to New York. At midnight, when meth devils guard the station door, drop silver coins in their paper cups to ward off their garbled curses. On the way, talk to no one. Sink into your seat. Turn your sweater into a pillow, but don't fall asleep until you've threaded your feet through the straps of your bag and said seven incantations to dream of flying. As for the small, heartless thing you carry with you, keep it tucked away somewhere close. When you arrive in New York, buy a knife to clean the tiny bones. In the meantime, speed down the road from consciousness to sleep until you gain enough momentum to lift off from your body. Then trouble the clouds until you come to know what the warbler has always known. Confide your secrets to a winter sky and secrets turn to snow. It will fall when you wake in Chinatown. First, find a knife. Call your lover later after you've called your husband or wife, to say, I made it to the city, soups in the fridge, disappear in an alley or under a bridge, and dissect the cold body to feel the hollowness inside the bones, the anatomy of flight, so light in your upturned palm. That's incredible. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Your work was fantastic. Um, Shannon is actually going to give me one of her chat books to keep, so I am so excited <laughs> to read it. Um, but I noticed like throughout your poetry, you seem to kind of draw on your childhood experiences and your background a little bit. Would you say that that really played a big role in your life? Or do you think that's something that you use just as like a starting off point for a lot of your your poems? Well, I think I began writing poetry in an attempt to try to deal with a lot of the unresolved issues that I had uh, mm -hmm. with my family, uh, stemming from my father's pedophilia and um, my sister's death from cancer many years later. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to grapple with those issues, but at the same time, I was also kind of scared mm -hmm. to approach those issues because it, it's something that my family never talked about. I really struggled with that. Um, and thankfully, uh, I, I got some really good advice from Natasha Trethewey. When I was at uh, the Vermont Studio Center, she was the visiting writer there, and uh, we were workshopping some poems together. I had explained to her that I was hesitant to mention some details yeah. because of the way that, you know, they would implicate my family. And she gave me great advice, which was that I should just go ahead and write the poems and then figure out what to do with them later. <laughs> so I did that. And... Um, Definitely that trauma is something that informed my chapbook immensely. Mm -hmm. um, I've moved beyond that subject matter in the last few years, and uh, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it definitely was the impetus for a lot of my early work. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that you use the butcher character that reoccurs in a lot of your poetry as a sort of emblem for your father. How did that metaphor first come about for you? Was it something you chose or was it something that just arose kind of unconsciously? Um, I started writing a poem called The Butcher that began just being about this 
butcher that my sister had always told me about. You know, she she told me yeah. that ghost story of the man with red eyes, yeah. and it, it it stuck with me. It haunted me, and so I began writing a different poem, the, the poem called "The Butcher," trying to kind of capture the, this image of um, this man pouring blood in the creek behind our house because um, our house was a slaughterhouse in the early 20th century before health codes dictated that you yeah. couldn't just dump blood in a <laughs> creek. <laughs> so they just poured the blood in the creek. And, and I started with that image. And as I wrote the poem, I realized that I was really dealing with subject matter having to do with my father and trying to grapple with issues of how he did what he had done. Um, mm -hmm. And so I didn't consciously make the decision to do it. But once I'd done it, I, I realized that there was kind of no turning back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One other question I had was um, just kind of relating again to your background and where you get your inspiration from. Do you feel like poetry is something that sort of lended its way to that kind of recovery process? You were talking about how you've moved beyond just that subject matter. Is that something that you think poetry has helped you on that journey? Or is it more just kind of a byproduct of it? No, it's absolutely something that's helped me. Um, I think that with stories that haunt you and that uh, trouble you, the best way to stop them from doing that to, to the extent that you can is to retell the story so many times and in so many different ways that you get a little bit of control over it. And so you can focus on an image that you find redeeming or at least beautiful enough to make up for some of the yeah. the, the things that are a little bit more difficult to swallow. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible. It's an incredible story. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. All of your work thank has you. been incredible, and I look forward to reading your chapbook. Thank you. <laughs> so this has been Kita Chintalapudi with Eye on the Triangle. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. I have no idea how to start off this review. I've used up basically every witty intro I could think of, as well as just opening directly into the review, so I guess this is what you get. Anyways, today's album to be reviewed is The Great Detachment by Wintersleep. Now, usually I like to wait until about halfway through the review to indicate how I feel about an album, but I gotta say, this album was an unexpected nugget of gold. When I picked up the CD from the studio, I was just grabbing something from an artist that I was vaguely familiar with from Pandora, and it also come out this month. Little did I know that this album would be stuck in my head for the next three weeks. It's probably going to stay in there for another five as well. It's just that enjoyable. Now, my exposure to this band actually goes hand in hand with the first question I always like to ask, which is, who are Wintersleep? Like I said, I've had some nominal exposure to this band in the past. That takes the form of listening to two of their songs on Pandora, and two or three that I didn't really care for that much on YouTube, which I subsequently forgot. The other two songs, however, have been with me for a while. Those are Weighty Ghost and Dead Letter and the Infinite Yes, respectively. When I heard those songs, I was at a time in my life where everything was just kind of crappy, depressing, and confusing. So, you know, 90% of your teenage years. The first song, Weighty Ghost, was a sad pleasure. A kind of comforting tale of depression that lets you know that you're not alone and that everybody's got to do a little soul-searching sometime. 
Dead Letter and the Infinite Yes is fairly similar, but instead of providing comfort, it more so revels in distress and depression, acknowledging the flawed nature of humanity and emotion from a biological standpoint. It's one of the few songs that I've heard that accurately addresses the futility of depression as a disease of both the mind and body. Both of these songs have had a lasting impression on me, as a product of their sheer musical brilliance, and are the base which I form my impressions of Winter Sleep around. Even though I never really checked out their other work prior to now, I had always held their creative ability in a somewhat high regard just based off of those two songs. So that's my understanding of what the band has been. The actual history of the band shows that these two songs that I heard were off of their third album, Welcome to the Night Sky. The Great Detachment, today's album, marks their fifth full-length album and has been hailed as a return to form for the Halifax, Nova Scotia-based band. I can't confirm or deny that as I haven't really listened to any of their first two albums, but that's what the Wikipedia page says, so I'm gonna stick with it. Having gone back and listened to Welcome to the Night Sky all the way through though, I can say that this album is definitely much different from just two albums ago. Welcome was a lingering, depressing album about internal struggle, sadness, self-acceptance, and coming to terms with mortality. It featured subdued guitars and drums with an emphasis on vocals and softer instrumentation. The Great Detachment is a somewhat stark contrast to these moody, blues-laden indie tracks. Where Welcome had internal struggle as a recurring theme, The Great Detachment faces outward struggle as introduced through difficult relationships, a failing country, albeit not the band's own country of Canada, and adjusting to a changing landscape in life. Where Welcome was subdued and internally pensive, The Great Detachment is forthright and loud, trading hushed, steady guitar for a blurring, klaxon alarm sounding accompaniment that grinds away in the background. This is especially present on the album's opening track, America, which borrows from famous American poet Walt Whitman. You can probably guess which poem they got the lyrics from. Side note, I find it really funny how they took a poem about a grand vision for a new country and used the lines to create new lyrics about disease and the failing state of a country, America, which they do not reside in. The band is Canadian, which I guess just means the American spirit is universal or it was just really easily applicable to Canada as well. Either way, the song is a great success and showcases a lot of changes from Welcome to the Night Sky all the way up to The Great Detachment. The song is pure indie rock and relishes in it. There's a certain intelligence that arises from the music itself and accompanies the use of Whitman well. The song as a whole does a great job at creating a sense of grandeur accompanied by furious unrest, perfectly encapsulating a lot of the emotion unfolding in America throughout the ages and even today. And it's not just that first song that's pure gold, it's like the first five tracks on the album can't go wrong. Be it the nighttime beach atmosphere created in Santa Fe or the strong sense of self-realization created by the song Lifting Cure, this album knows how to convey a certain feeling, and it knows how to do it well. And consistently, and whilst making sure the tracks themselves are catchy and easy to listen to. It's not often that a work can find a clean compromise between artistic message and casual appeal, but The Great Detachment has that down, solid. It's rare as well to find an album this solid overall. There aren't many complaints that can be had here, but as usual, no album is perfect. Where I find The Great Detachment lacks is in the generic latter half of the album. Past the song Shadowless, the songs generally don't stand out near as much. Aside from the song Territory, which has Getty freaking Lee on the bass, Getty Lee, Canadian garden musician extraordinaire, founder and lead vocalist of the legendary classic rock band Rush, Forever and Ever I'm In. So, yeah, Territory is pretty hype, and it stands out as being one of the few immediately great songs on the latter half of the album. It's also one of the singles. Now, that's not to say the rest of the tracks aren't great, it's just that they have to grow on you a bit more before you really get to enjoy them. That's really the only complaint I have to voice with this album. 
I'd say I don't think it's totally groundbreaking, but who really knows? It's a unique enough album that fits solidly in that niche gray area between indie and mainstream, and it kicks ass. Whether it reinvents the genre or not is irrelevant at this point. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give The Great Detachment a 5.5. But wait, I hear you say, how come it's not a 7 or at least a 6? Well, as much as I enjoy this album, and I think it's a solid piece, in addition to the flaws I just described, I actually am starting to grow a little tired of it. Granted, I've listened to it about 20 times now, but my opinion has been slightly dampened. 5.5 is still a top-tier score, though, and I'll be holding up The Great Detachment as one of my favorite releases of 2016, guaranteed. Once again, even though I just said it, the album is The Great Detachment by Wintersleep. That's all for today. This is Jacob Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and today we'll be taking a look at the film Seven Psychopaths. Seven Psychopaths was released in 2012, and it, to me, gained much less attention than it was due. That is why I'm bringing it to your attention today. This film is honestly a very unique story. It has elements of a Tarantino film with its gore and storytelling methods, but it stands alone in its style. I have never seen a film that borrowed from Tarantino well enough that I did not feel like it was just copying him. I actually enjoyed how they interpreted and changed the style, and the resulting story was very entertaining and unique. The story follows a writer while he is writing a new book called The Seven Psychopaths. And throughout the film, it seems that as much as his life is affecting how his story is written, it sometimes also seems that his life is his story. I'm not sure whether or not this was an intended effect of the way the story is told, but it is an interesting one. The main character's best friend is attempting to help him write his story, and he gets so caught up in writing it that he attempts to bring parts of his vision to life. This brings about what might be the unintended consequence of questioning whether or not the character knows that he himself is within a story. Colin Farrell plays the lead role in this movie. You may know him from the lead role in In Bruges, and he does a fantastic job of it. Colin Farrell is a far underrated actor. I wish he had the chance to star in more big blockbuster films because I really enjoy his talent. He plays similar characters in most of his films, but even if he only did that one type of character, I think I would still enjoy his films because of his ease in playing it. The major key of the storytelling that I enjoyed was the little side stories that developed from the main character writing his own story. These side stories came in a few forms, such as someone else telling their own life story or suggesting edits to the ones he had come up with himself. The first scene in the movie is one of this nature and it initially throws you off. That scene is what had me questioning what was and wasn't part of the main story for the rest of the film. It was pretty obvious most of the time, but some of the outlandish parts of the movie had me questioning what was real. You could almost make the argument that just as in Fight Club, spoiler warning here, don't listen if you haven't seen the movie Fight Club. It's going to ruin the whole thing and it's great, but it's a good comparison and I couldn't help myself. So in Fight Club, all the side characters are in the main character's head. All right, spoilers over. I mean, once the true nature of the side characters revealed, there is almost too much of a coincidence for them not to be at least somewhat augmented by his imagination. 
There's nothing that truly stood out in the film in terms of innovation or really spectacular cinematography. They could have experimented more with the filming, and I wish they did. It's always a shame when films don't take advantage of their medium. That being said, the things that stood out about the film were the characters, who were all unique, and the general believability of the strange things that occurred in the film, which actually surprised me. The well-written plot doesn't ever really throw a huge turn around or reveal into the mix, but instead has a steady build-up with a small drop-off. I became attached to the characters and enjoyed their stories. They ended up all being intertwined in a satisfying way and left the side character far more developed and intricate than the main character. I'm going to give this film a 6 out of 10. I felt it dragged on and the story could have been around two-thirds of the length that it ended up being. It's possible that they originally had a much longer script and cut it down to the size, but if that was the case, I think they needed to do a little bit more editing. There's a little bit too much intricacy to the story. It becomes overly complicated. But other than the length and the lack of variety in the style of its cinematography, I quite liked this film. The story was original, and the characters were oddly believable. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Snowverated and Eye on the Triangle. I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 4.34. I'm Marissa Jordan. If you're just tuning in now, today's episode is a little bit of a throwback of some of my favorite pieces. The Poetry Corner, Modest Mouth Review, and Snowverated were all from March 2016. Now for the weather. We're looking at a rainy week ahead of us. Today, Wednesday the 3rd, there is a 90% chance of precipitation with thunderstorms predicted and a high of 83 and a low of 70. Thursday, we're looking at a high of 84 and a low of 69 with scattered thunderstorms all day. Friday, it's predicted a high of 88 and a low of 71 with afternoon thunderstorms. Saturday, the sun will be returning and we will have mostly sunny skies with a high of 94 and a low of 73. Finally, on Sunday, we will be finishing up the week with a high of 90 and a low of 70 with partly cloudy skies. On this day in history, for our history buffs, in 1492, Christopher Columbus set sail for the New World. In 1861, the last installment of Charles Dickens's Great Expectations is published. In 1949, the MBA was created. And in 1975, Boeing 707 crashed into a mountain near Agadir, Morocco. In 1996, the Macarena hits top of the charts. But more importantly, in 1996, I was born. Looks like I have a historically important birthday. But as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors, Jake Winters, Nick Weaver, and Nikita Chintilaputi. For Eye on the Triangle, I am Marissa Jordan. Wishing you all a great Wednesday afternoon.